0: What I would like to consider with you tonight is Job's friends, ones ones that he called worthless physicians and sorry comforters. We'll look those up in in a moment. But we left off last time at the end of chapter 7, and we're going to pick up there this evening. Basically, what we've seen thus far and what went on in chapter 7 was Job continued to maintain his innocence in the midst of overwhelming suffering. Now, the suffering to his friends meant that he must be some kind of a terrible sinner because of The fact that God punishes sin, and it sure looked like Job was being punished, so therefore he must be a sinner of very, uh, what's the word, terrible, very terrible sinner. Well, what I'd like to do this evening is examine the responses of his two other friends, this, The one that we looked at um, last week was Eliphaz in chapter 4 and uh, then Job's response to him. But we want to go on and look at this uh, friend Bildad in chapter 8 and Zophar in chapter 11. Uh, why don't we pray here before we go on? Father, we ask for your help now to understand these portions of Scripture in this book that in some places is hard to understand. We ask for your Holy Spirit to guide and direct that it might be profitable for our souls as we look into this portion of your Word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's important to remember that we as readers of this book know what Job and his friends did not know. That God was allowing (laughs) Satan to bring this terrible devastation and affliction into Job's life. Job didn't know that and his friends didn't either. It was allowed brought about by God to demonstrate Job's integrity to Satan who had questioned that and ultimately really for Job's good. It was not because Job was being punished for sin, which is what Job's friends said and in some ways Job believed that too at least it looked like that's what was going on Job could not understand why he deserved such terrible treatment from God but his friends assumed that it must be because of being a terrible sinner maybe it was hidden sin but nevertheless he must have been a terrible sinner and so therefore their counsel counsel to Job was to repent acknowledge your sin and repent their basic view of life was what we've already seen from the words of that first man, Eliphaz, found in uh, chapter 4 and verse 8. He says, According to what I've seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble, harvest it. So that's another way of saying you reap what you sow. Um, And since you're reaping suffering, you must have sown sin. They're working backwards on that uh, basic general truth. You reap what you sow. Now, we said that Eliphaz based his views on what he had experienced. In other words, he goes by his own personal experience, and says, now, this is what I've learned. He says, "Uh, according to what I've seen. So his basis for dealing with Job was his own personal experience. And, in fact, he even reinforces that position, uh, his position with Job, by going on what he had experienced in a dream. He tells Job about this dream that he's had. So uh, that was his place of reference. When we come to Bildad, this section we're going to read here in a moment, we see that he has a different reference point, and that reference point is tradition. What's been said in the past? What's common knowledge as found in the platitudes and proverbial sayings from the past? Though the reference point is a little different than Eliphaz, the conclusion is the same. Job has sinned and must repent. So let's just read, we'll just read part of this section, chapter 8. And I guess we'll read the first ten verses. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered, "'How long will you say these things?' and the words of your your mouth be a mighty wind. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? Then he lays it on pretty heavy here. If your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. So here's those seven sons, and didn't even mention the daughters. Three daughters that were killed by this whirlwind. Well, must be their sin. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. And here's his frame of reference. Please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers. For we are only of yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are as a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and bring forth words from their minds? May goes through a few, what must have been kind of proverbial sayings or platitudes of that time, and applies them to Job. Uh, and basically, we won't read it, but basically it's the same idea. You know, you surely have sinned. God's going to judge you for that. You need to repent, or God is judging you for that, and you need to repent. Now, Job responds then in chapter 9, and we'll look at that next week, but basically he says, I actually agree with the basic premise. God does not pervert what is right. He's just. But, I've done what is right. In other words, I'm, I'm an innocent person suffering so i'd like to bring my case right to god to be vindicated but i can't do that then we'll talk about job's problem and wanting to bring his case to god and why he didn't feel like he could do that next time but for now i want to skip on over and look at this third friend zophar now, what I I just want to ha- have us get a little feel. We've already, you know, we spent a little time looking at Eliphaz the first time, and we've just read a little bit from Bildad, and now I want to read uh, this section from Zophar, and then we're going to analyze how not to be a sorry counselor, comforter. All right, let's just turn to chapter 11 then. Let me just say before I start here that he is the most blunt and brutal of them all. He's very dogmatic in what he says. He seems to be what you what we would call today a know-it-all. He says that Job Job is talkative, boastful, a scoffer, and one who needs to be rebuked. He actually goes so far to say. That Job really hasn't gotten all that he deserves. He, re- he deserves worse than what he's got. Now, you've got to remember who he's talking to here. A man who's lost all his possessions, all his children, his health, his reputation, a, a, a devastated, totally uh, beat down man. Setting in the ash heap, scra- scraping himself with pieces of pottery. And here, this Zophar says, "You, you really haven't gotten enough of how bad you are." Let's read it. Then Zophar the Na- Namathite answered, "Shall a multitude of words go unanswered, and a talkative man be acquitted? Shall your boast silence men?" And shall you scoff and none rebuke? For you have said, My teaching is pure, and I am innocent in your eyes. But would that God might speak and open his lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom. For sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. He hasn't even, He's saying God is not dealing even with all of your iniquity and what he's done to you. And then he goes into some things concerning the greatness of God. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can, we, what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? For he knows false men and he sees iniquity iniquity without investigating now of course all this implies that there's a lot of iniquity there that that uh, people may not be aware of but that god is and that that uh, job is a false person a false man a hypocrite and then he says and an idiot will become intelligent when a fowl of a wild donkey is born to a man in other words You're saying idiotic things, Job. If you would direct your heart right and spread out your hands to him, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Then indeed, you could lift up your face without moral defect and you would be steadfast and not fear for you would forget your trouble as waters that have passed by and would not remember it and your life would be brighter than noonday darkness would be like the morning then you would trust because there is hope and you would look around and rest securely you would lie down and none would disturb and many would entreat your favor but the eyes of the wicked will fail and there will be no escape for them and their hope is to breathe their last. I think that last line, he, uh, Zophar is basically saying, "Yeah, you, you want to die. Well, of course, you want to die. Since you, since you, you won't admit your fault and you won't repent, your only hope is to the only hope to be out of your misery is just to breathe your last." As the saying goes with friends like this (laughs) who needs enemies. Let's just read uh, the first little part of Job's response here, and then we'll talk about what these guys have said. Then Job responded, Truly then, you are the people, and with you wisdom will die. But I have intelligence as well as you. I am not inferior to you and who does not know such things as these. I am a joke to my friends. The one who called on God and he answered him, the just and blameless man is a joke. He who is at ease holds calamity and contempt as prepared for those whose feet slipped. The tents of the destroyers prosper and those who provoke God are secure whom God brings into their power. He Job's. Begins with a little sarcasm, I think. Saying, since you guys have all the answers, it'll sure be a shame when you die because all knowledge will pass away when you do. Basically what he's saying. But he goes on and says that, you know, you've made a mockery of my past life and totally disregarded how I've lived for God all all these years. Your position, he tells them, is easy to take because all seems well with you right now. But it would be different if you were in my shoes. That's I. he who is at ease holds calamity and contempt. So he goes on then in later chapters talking about these men and what they're saying to him. And he calls them worthless physicians. Why don't we just... Uh, chapter 13... Verse 4 and 5. But you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be completely silent and that it would become your wisdom. In other words, the wisest thing for you guys to do is just be quiet. Because you're basically, what you're saying to me is worthless. You're worthless physicians. And then 16... Chapter 16, this is after some more counsel from these men. Then Job answered, I have heard many such things. Sorry comforters are you all. Is there no limit to windy words? And what plagues you that you answer? I too could speak like you if I were in your place. I could compose words against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the soles of my lips could lessen your pain. In other words, I could take it the the other way of dealing with you, not this rude and and, uh, insensitive way, but I could also say things that would help you. But you haven't done that. You're sorry comforters. That's just the first... What we've looked at, we've, look, we've looked at the first time these three men have spoken to Job, and Job's we haven't really looked at all of Job's response to those. But we've get, I hope we've gotten a little feel for how they're dealing with Job. And that's just the first cycle of dialogues. There's two more to come after this. But I, I think that already we've gotten somewhat of an understanding of why God... Eventually, says to these three friends that their words were foolish and sinful. Let's just turn to the last chapter of the book, and this is what this is God speaking in chapter 42, and we'll just read verses 7 and 8. And it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly. So he's saying you're foolish in what you've said, and it's sinful. You need to offer up some sacrifices because of what you said. Because you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. He's, God is emphasizing the fact that Job is his servant. My servant Job. He says it over and over in there. So, what is it then concerning these men that made them Worthless physicians and sorry comforters. Or another way to, to put it, how can we avoid becoming that kind of physician and comforter? Uh, worthless and sorry. Well, I, I've written seven. I'm sure there could come up with some more, but here's seven that I think uh, stand out in this, these accounts. We need to be careful about presenting partial truth. Their theology was somewhat correct, but it was incomplete. Many of the things they said are correct, but they were incomplete and therefore did not do justice to the situation. It was not so much what they said that was wrong. It was what they didn't say. Not only did did they harm Job, they misrepresented God. Their particular partial truth had to do with the relationship of suffering and sin. Now, that may not always be the partial truth. In fact, that's just one particular area. But that's the one they uh, exploited. It's true that ultimately you reap what you sow. But not all suffering in this life is caused by a person's sin. Now, is this relevant for today? Well, I'd say actually what they're saying is a version of today's prosperity gospel. Those who are right with God will not suffer, but they'll be healthy and wealthy and happy. That's, that's a prosperity gospel. That's basically the that position they were taking. So this is not something that someone just put forth 4,000 years ago. Actually, there is such a thing as innocent suffering in this life. God has different reasons for bringing suffering into a person's life, and it's not always retribution for sin. See, that was the position they were saying. You're suffering because God is dealing with you according to the sin that you've done. So we need to be careful about presenting partial truth and oversimplifying complex situations. Surely one of the things that we should learn from these counselors is that we need to be careful about jumping to conclusions and we need to be careful about not giving simplistic answers to complex situations. What they were doing was applying a general truth without distinction or exception. We have to be careful about that. General truths are not absolutes. There's a lot of proverbs like that, that in general are true, but there are exceptions, and we need to recognize that and not present them as absolute. Another way of saying this is we need to beware of hasty generalizations. They just assumed that Job had sinned so greatly and that that was the cause of this suffering. So they latched on to especially Bildad, latched on to some platitudes from the past, and ends up doing a great injustice to the man he's talking to. So that, was that. I would say, would be the first thing. Be careful about presenting partial truth and making hasty generalizations. The second thing, they were not compassionate or empathetic. You remember Job brought this out when he was responding to Eliphaz. He said... Uh, In 6.14, for the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friends, lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. There wasn't kindness here. There seemed to be very little attempt on their part to understand his agony and despair. We need to have genuine sympathy for those in hard situations. What his friends did was leap upon his words, which Job and were hasty. They leapt upon his words without trying to identify what was going on behind the words. Instead of weeping with those that weep, they tore into him with insensitive and inappropriate words. So it's important to consider why the person says what they say, not just what they say. We need to speak very carefully and compassionately to those dealing with deep hurts in their lives. John Piper, in talking about dealing with people in this kind of situ- situation, he says, let the tears f- flow freely. And I think that's on both sides. We ought to let that person be able to, to cry about what's going on. And when they do, we ought to be able to cry with them, which is another way of just saying being empathetic and try to put yourself in their shoes. That's what Job says here. He says, he who is at ease holds calamity and contempt. In other words, yeah, you can say these things now because of the situation you're in. But it would be different if you were in my shoes. So don't add to the pain of the person through insensitivity. That's what these men did. They actually made the situation worse for Job. Number three, we need to pray. If you're counseling with someone, dealing with someone that's in a very agonizing situation, you need to pray. Now here's a very interesting thing, in all their recorded interaction with Job were never told that they prayed to God, for wisdom, in what to say to him, nor did they pray with Job we don't see that happening or for Job. They didn't pray about what they had to say to him. They didn't pray for him, they didn't pray with him. They didn't pray. Now Job prayed. You find him crying out to God throughout this book. And it's true that some of his prayers were complaints and questions to God, but at least he was honestly praying. He was he was saying to God what he felt, what what was on his heart, what was troubling him. And that's what God wants us to do. They didn't pray so that should be a big warning sign to us that we're not going to give very good counsel we're not going to give much help to anybody unless we pray with them and for them and about what we should say to them and job did pray what was on his heart which is another area that i think is important in helping those that are hurting Let them say what they really feel. Don't condemn the hurting one for honestly expressing their feelings. Job was dealing with confusion and doubt and shattered emotions, and it was not the time to condemn him for expressing those things. Sometimes what Job says, we haven't really gotten into that very much yet, but sometimes what Job says seems to border on being blasphemous. He says such heartfelt, (coughs) despairing things to God. Nevertheless, it was from his heart and what he was really feeling. And that's good. Right along with this, timing is important in what we say and we should temper our response to what the individual can handle at that particular point in their personal pain. You have to deal with them in the situation they're in and match your words to the situation, which is something these friends did not do. So We need to listen and let the person say what they really think without being judgmental. Job's friends did not do that. The next thing I would say, this is number five if you're numbering them, don't try to be the answer man for God. We are not responsible to say why God does what he does in every situation. In fact, it's okay to say, I don't know. It would have been very good for Job's friends to say that. Job, I don't know why this has come upon you. But we're here to be with you through it. That's not what they did, though. They said they knew exactly why this had come upon Job. Because of his sin. At least they thought they did. Well, you might say that was, you know, maybe 4,000 years ago. We've got a lot more light and we do and there's a lot more we can say about suffering and why these things happen but even with the added light of the new testament god still does much that's beyond our understanding we still see through a glass darkly as paul put it in some things so we need to be very careful about speculation concerning why god does what he does if as you read through the book you find out that both job and his friends said wrong things in their speculation about what was happening you know sometimes all we can say is that the day shall declare it by that i mean in eternity we'll see these things in their true light and we don't see them now and we don't understand them now and sometimes that's the best thing to say to a person it's certainly better than a bunch of human speculation that may be off mark long ways which it was in the way these men dealt with job trying to give an answer where god hadn't give the answer, didn't give the answer you know if god doesn't give the answer we're not in a place to give it faith is willing to wait for God's answer. For now, in some things, there remain areas that are hard to be understood and seasons of life that we just can't figure out. So don't try to be the answer man for God. Number six, don't treat hurting people as inferior. Job says in a number of places that that's the way they made him feel. And the fact is, you could be in that person's situation and probably do worse than they're doing. So don't treat the hurting person as inferior. For one thing, it makes it a lot harder to receive anything right that you might say. If if they have that insulting <coughs> Attitude coming across. I'm up here, you're down here, let me tell you why you're down there. And then lastly, don't distort the truth to defend God or make your case. God does not need defending, especially by ungodly means. And Job points this out to these guys in chapter 13 verses 7 through 12 I think these are amazing verses will you speak what is unjust for God and speak what is deceitful for him will you show partiality for him will you contend for God will it be well when he examines you or will you deceive him as one deceives a man he will surely reprove you if you secretly show partiality. And he's talking about showing partiality to God. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall on you? Your memorable sayings are proverbs of ashes and your defenses are defenses of clay. But especially the first part. Will you speak what is unjust for God? In other words, don't fudge the facts to favor your view of God and truth. Now, I actually think that's done more than what Christians would want to admit. To make their point, they don't really bring out the whole truth. They'll bring out the part that favors their position, favors their view, but they do not really deal honestly with the whole situation. Job's friends distorted the truth about his life in order to defend their theology. In their view, Job had... To be a very had to be very sinful. Instead of acknowledging that maybe their theology might need to be revised a little bit, what did they do? They rewrote the facts. They rewrote Job's life. Now let me just show you how extreme that can become. You remember back when we were um, reading uh, in chapter four uh, what Eliphaz had to say. He said. In, in verse uh, 3 behold you have admonished many and you have strengthened the weak hands your words have helped the tottering to stand and you have strengthened feeble knees of course he says now he turns that around and says well, but now since this has come upon you you're acting differently but at least he acknowledged that Job you know had done these things strengthened the weak hands and helped the tottering and strengthened the feeble But as time goes on, as these arguments go on, and they they get more uh, determined to win their argument and to make their case, they actually distort and lie about Job in order to make their case. Let's turn to chapter 22. This, This was Eliphaz at the beginning saying some things to Job. Now here's the last thing, the last discourse from Eliphaz to Job chapter 22 and beginning with verse 4 is it because of your reverence that he reproves you that he enters into judgment against you Okay, so he says well you know we know it's not because you're so good that God's judging you and then he goes into this is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end for you have taken pledges Of your brothers without cause and strip men naked to the weary you have given no water to drink and from the hungry you have withheld bread but the earth belongs to the mighty man and the honorable man dwells in it you have sent widows away empty and the strength of the orphans has been crushed therefore snares surround you and sudden dread terrifies you or darkness so that you cannot see and an abundance of waters cover you. So here he's just lying, making up these things about Job in order to bolster his position, his argument that Job's a sinful man and that's why he's suffering. So what, what's he doing? He's trying, he's using distorted truth to try to defend his theology, his view of God, and to make his case. So we need to be very careful about defending God. Of course, it's always wrong to use dishonesty to even do what we think is a righteous thing. There's a place for this idea of defending God, but it should never include any dishonesty or distortion of the facts, defending God's truth against lies. Actually often the best thing is just to let God speak for Himself, which is what eventually made the difference in Job's life. The ultimate answer to suffering is not a logical argument, even the correct logical argument. It's the presence of God. In short, as one who would try to as ones who would try to help others that are hurting. We need to listen. Listen to what they're saying. That's the first thing. Just listen. We need to carefully consider the situation, not make hasty judgments. We need to pray. Ask God for wisdom, because we don't have enough wisdom to know how to deal with people. And pray with the person and for the person. Then we need to speak the truth in love We need to steer away from any kind of superior attitude. We need to be careful about stifling honest emotion. And we need to not pretend we know why God does all that He does in every situation. We need to be willing to say, I don't know what God's doing here. Say what we do know, but don't speculate. Ultimately, we need to ask God to do what we can't do for that person well those are seven things anyway that I think come out from these examples of these three men if if you read on through you'll see a heightening of their um, attitude their wrong attitude insensitive attitude towards Job and you see Job getting more extreme in his position Uh, he says things like I said before that seem almost to be blasphemy he never does what Satan said he would do which is curse God renounce his faith he never does that but he does say some things that he has to repent of in his uh, despair. What we've done here is answer somewhat question 9 on that sheet that I handed out of thought provokers. Question 9, what do you think should have been said said to Job by his friends? Uh, Maybe if you've thought through that, maybe there's some things that you would want to add. Well, next time, I want to deal with Job's response to Bildad, which is in chapter 9 and 10. Because there's some very important things that he asked God about that go right on through the rest of the book that uh, I think are important to our understanding of what what this book's all about. So if you want to kind of get ahead a little bit or be ready, if you just read chapters 9 and 10, that would help, I think, next time.